The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. I hope you all had a wonderful Valentine's Day, and you're somewhere where there isn't eight feet of snow blocking your driveway. Um, for those of us in the Northeast, it's been a really long month. Um, I'm very happy uh, to introduce our next topic and our guest today. Um, we're going to be talking about um, the science behind 12-step recovery and um, our guest is Dr. Joseph Nowinski, who is a clinical psychologist who has taught at the University of California, San Francisco, and the University of Connecticut. And he has served as a supervising psychologist at the University of Connecticut Health Center. He is the author of the 12-step facilitation therapy, which is listed in the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Registry of Evidence-Based Programs and Practices. And he also co-wrote Almost Alcoholic, Is My or My Loved One's Drinking a Problem with co-author Robert Doyle. He uh, blogs regularly for the Huffington Post and Psychology Today. Thank you for um, joining us, Dr. Nowinski. I have to say that um, I, I am so honored to talk to you because the 12-step facilitation manual has been something we've been using for um, a number of years. So thank you for doing that. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad. Have, you, have you found it useful? Yes, Great. Um, very much so. Um, and, and even the research, just so our listeners can um, kind of tune into what we're talking about, um, do you want to explain to them what Project Match was? Sure, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, I, um, you know, I'm a clinical psychologist, and uh, please feel free to call me Joe. And um, I originally got my training at the Hazelton Foundation, um, and the, the context for that was that I was director of uh, student health and mental health services at the University of Connecticut at the time, and we were having the usual, the same problem that they have today, you know, alcohol and drug problems, and I really didn't know much about it. So I went out to Hazelden three times and through the training program and got some training. Uh, I ended up um, running, uh, leaving uh, UConn uh, for a psychiatric uh, hospital where I started uh, their adolescent and adult um, treatment programs and uh, wrote a book about adolescent substance use. That was my first book in this area. So uh, that led, one thing led to another, and I was invited to uh, develop a 12-step oriented treatment uh, for something called Project Match. And Project Match is the largest uh, psychotherapy outcome study ever conducted in this country. It was national in scope, almost 2,000 participants, nine treatment sites. And what they wanted to do is compare three different treatments uh, for alcohol abuse and alcohol dependence. 
And one of them is uh, called a, a kind of cognitive behavioral approach, which is very popular. Uh, another was uh, an approach called motivational enhancement therapy. And then the third one that they wanted was a 12-step oriented program. And the reason for that was that the Institute of Medicine, an influential institute in Washington, had, uh, had written a white paper back in 1989 issued it and said that AA is ubiquitous. It's, you know, it's all over the place and it's international in scope, but no one's really studied it rigorously. You know, there's no, there's been no really rigorous research on it because AA doesn't conduct research. It only does member surveys. So, uh, this, this study was designed to, to compare these three treatments and not just which one might have worked best, but actually what they were really looking for was what treatment might work best for certain people, right? So that they thought that my 12-step facilitation approach would be best for those who had the most severe alcohol problems and so forth. So uh, we went ahead and, and did a project match. It was a seven-year study, um, a major, major study. And um, the people were followed for three years. And uh, what they found, lo and behold, was that all three treatments worked. Uh, which was surprising, to be honest, to some of the researchers involved because many of them really didn't know much about the 12-step model and really actually didn't have much faith that it worked, just like a lot of people in the general public. So they were kind of surprised that that 12-step facilitation worked. But even more surprising was the fact that it was about 10% more effective than the other two treatments, and that lasted over three years and that um, people who were assigned to the 12-step approach to treatment, this is all randomly assigned people, by the way, uh, were twice as likely to be completely abstinent during the first year after treatment. So it was really quite a surprise that uh, to the research community that the 12-step model worked as well as it did. Um, and that led in turn to uh, 20 years of research, to be honest with you. That led to 20 more years of research uh, which is really the subject of my book, uh, If You Work It, It Works. Um, well, thank you for the overview. I, I yeah. think that, um, you know, it was almost, um, it was so validating, the Project Match was so validating on so many different levels, but, um, you know, your book, if, if You Work It, It Works, The Science Behind 12-Step Recovery, um, is is a wonderful validation because so often we hear that because of the anonymity of um, any of the 12-step programs that it's hard to do research, it's hard to validate whether, in fact, the, um, they do work or not. And so mm -hmm. um, how were you able to obtain your data uh, based on the anonymity of the program? Well, that's actually, actually that was interesting too because it led to a conference about, about research into AA and I was invited to speak at and a lot of leading researchers went to that conference. And, you know, as it turns out, the, the issue really isn't that you can't research AA. It's that AA doesn't do research, okay? So AA publishes every three years some member surveys, which are very helpful, but it's not research. Also, AA does not respond to criticism. By, by tradition, it does not get involved in public controversy. So in a way, that makes AA an easy target for people who want to criticize it uh, people who may have had a personal bad experience in AA uh, who then conclude that the whole fellowship is bad, or people who are honest, frankly just trying to promote some alternative model, okay, to, uh, you know, whether it's psychoanalysis or whatever. Uh, so it's easy for them to criticize AA because AA never responds. But actually it's been very possible to do research 
on AA, uh, of course, everybody who participates is guaranteed anonymity, and they're not identified by name. Uh, so a lot of research has been able to be done. Uh, for example, uh, one long 16-year study that I talk about, 16 years is a long time to follow people. And it identified people who, at the very beginning, had a you know, fairly severe alcohol problem. And then sort of they divided themselves, you know, they basically self-selected into three different groups, if you will. One is for people who just, men and women who decided they were going to go to AA but not go to rehab or treatment. Uh, another group decided that they were going uh, to go to, to, to rehab and not AA, AA and not rehab. And the third group decided to do both, okay? They decided to get treatment and and go to AA at the same time. So it is possible to identify and follow these people as long as you do it anonymously. And um, what they found, interestingly, is that uh, even 16 years later, uh, the group that started out getting treatment and going to AA at the same time had the best outcome, even 16 years later. And um, that even over 16 years, any people who, who dropped out of AA at any point in 16 years were more likely to start drinking again. Uh, that doesn't mean they all, you know, became alcohol dependent again. We don't know about that so well. But we do know that, that even over 16 years, if people dropped out, they were more likely to start drinking again. So there's a real lesson there for people who want to think about, well, if, if I'm thinking about going to AA, you know, uh, how long should I go? Should I go for three months? Should I go for six months? Uh, what will my outcome be? And, and that study is very instructive. It shows that some level of involvement uh, is kind of your best insurance policy over the long run. What made you decide to write the book? Well, that's, that's, that's a great, I'm glad you asked that because partly is because of what I said, because because AA is, has been an easy target for criticism, okay? Uh, people out there say it's harmful, it doesn't work, it actually uh, makes people worse. Uh, some people say it creates, causes addiction, um, and AA never responds. And I've been involved in research for, uh, for probably 25 years now. Uh, not all of it's been conducted by me by any means. Uh, many of the studies in the book were conducted at many research centers around the country. And, um, but essentially, uh, much of that research is not available uh, to the general public or even to many professionals, to be honest with you, because it tends to get published. You know, this is, this is research that goes through extensive peer review to get funded, then extensive peer review to get published, and it's published in professional journals. And there's two issues there. One is that not everybody has access to those journals. You know, very often you have to have paid subscriptions to get, to get access to them. Secondly, to be, you know, to be really honest, is sometimes you have to have a PhD to understand the studies. <laughs> so um, those studies have been, they're there, but pretty much unaware of it. So, uh, you know, my goal in writing the book was to translate that research, to translate it so that the average person who is a professional, say, counselor, or just the average lay reader who is thinking about, you know, maybe going to AA can understand what those studies say about AA. And I think that's, that was, you know, my intention in, in writing the book. So um, who did you write the book? What, what's the audience that you hope will pick up the book and read it? Well, there's three, yeah, that's, there's three groups, really. One is the... 
uh, is just, you know, a person who has an alcohol or drug problem and they realize they have an alcohol or drug problem and they're not sure what to do about it. You know, if they go on, on the Internet, they're, they're very likely to see all this negative stuff about hey, AA has the worst outcome in medicine, according to, you know, Lance Dodes, or other people say that it you know, hurts people. Um, so, you know, I wrote the book because it translates the research that people can understand. And if they're thinking about what to do about a drinking or a drug problem, if they read the book, they can see what the research says. Okay, what really is the truth, in other words? Uh, what the science says, not what people's opinion says. And they can make a decision then, you know, if they want to try AA, based on what the, what the science says. The second audience really would be people who are in AA, especially sponsors. I think sponsors, people who are our sponsors or thinking about being sponsors, they, they give their best advice to their sponsees. But I think it would be helpful for them also to understand, you know, what kind of suggestions they're making and why that makes sense, the science behind it, if you, if you, if you know what I mean. Uh, I don't personally like going to a doctor who tells me that this is the treatment I'm recommending but can't explain why he thinks it's going to work. So I think it would be helpful for people in AA or people who are sponsors or people who are counselors. A lot of people who are counselors and who want to recommend AA are also not aware of all this research. And I think it can help them to understand, you know, why is it important, for example, to get a, to get a sponsor early? What difference does it make? What does the research show about people who get a sponsor within the first three months versus people who get a sponsor six to nine or 12 months later? Uh, and there's data about that now. And we'll be right back after this commercial to talk more about um, the science behind the 12 step. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Fitness is important to keep your body in tip-top shape now and aging gracefully for the future. The Fitness Momentum Show with Coach Michael Merlino is designed to be your guide to fitness and running, whether you're a beginner or ready to run your next marathon. By paying attention to and following the tips offered by Michael and his guests, you'll be able to essentially be your own trainer. Get the most out of your fitness regimen and tune in every Friday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Healthcare today is full of complex questions and even more complex answers. On top of making choices about healthcare, how do you know that you're making the right choices? natural medicine or conventional medicine should i seek a second opinion what if i just don't feel right about the treatment i am recommended get the answers by tuning in to rising through it with dr danielle mcduff 
live every Friday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're going to continue our discussion on If You Work It, It Works, The Science Behind 12-Step Recovery, which is a new book written by Dr. Joseph Nowinski, who's a psychologist, um, and he has taught at the University of California, San Francisco, and the University of Connecticut, and he served as a supervising psychologist at the University of Connecticut Health Center. And um, before we went to break, you were talking broadly about some of the research and how applicable um, the research is to what we know just through our, I guess, um, common sense or daily practice. But um, in the beginning of the book, you cited a number of different um, research that talked about involvement in AA. Mm-hmm. and. Right. And, and if you could explain a little bit to our audience about what all that research demonstrated. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, first of all, recovery certainly begins with walking into that first meeting, okay? And by the way, I'm supportive of AANA, uh, Women for Sobriety, Double Trouble in Recovery, any, any fellowship that, uh, whose goal is to support you know, abstinence as a person's goal. And, you know, as we all know, you know, that's, that's achieved, you know, one day, one hour at a time. And that, um, very few people, you know, choose abstinence and they're abstinent then forever. So, um, so it's, it's a process for most people. But the, what the, what the, what the research shows is very interesting in terms of the, uh, various aspects of, of, of the 12 step model. Uh, anything from going to meetings to spirituality. Uh, and so it begins with going to the meetings. And so, uh, that's for sure. It begins there. And one study, um, by a researcher, uh, Lee Cascudis at the uh, Alcohol Research, uh, Center in Berkeley, um, they, they, they divided people who started out the, 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 with, uh, with an alcohol problem, okay, and they, they basically let them choose whatever they wanted to do about it, right? But then they, then they were able to follow these people, again, anonymously, you know, they reported anonymously so to protect their privacy. They followed those people for five years, and they divided them into, like, like several different what they call AA careers, and one was low involvement, which was pe- those people who decided to go to AA, but they went to less than 25 or less meetings in the first year, and then they sort of dropped out. And then there was a medium group that um, really went uh, to uh, about maybe a hundred, you know, the equivalent of two to three meetings a week, uh, and they did that consistently over the five years. They they do the two or three meetings a week, and then there was a high involvement group that 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 did like two hundred meetings 
um, a year, pretty much consistently. And then the last group, the last group was a group that started out with a bang, and they went to like 175 or 200 meetings the first year, and then by the fifth year, they were down to pretty much zero. So these are people who self-selected, okay, their AA careers. And what they found was that, as you might expect, the ones with low involvement had probably about a 30% chance of not drinking at the end of five years. Um, then you had the medium group and the high group who both did pretty well. Uh, the, the medium group, uh, by the end of five years, still it was about a 75% chance of being abstinent and for the high involvement, like 80%. And then there was that, that group that started out with a bang and then sort of petered out, and they were down to like 30% at the end of five years. So it's, again, very instructive for someone who is thinking about getting involved in AA or a sponsor who's talking to somebody and saying, you know, there's this interesting study here that shows that if you commit to going to two or three meetings a week and you do it consistently, your chances of, of recovery are, are really pretty good. Um, and as opposed to some people who really do start out with a bang, we, you know, we know those people. They, they, they go to a lot of meetings and then they lose interest. Uh, that that's probably not the best way. You're better, is that the steady involvement is probably the best way to go. And if you're a counselor counseling someone or if you're a sponsor to talk to some, talking to somebody, this is, I think, very useful information to share with them. I mean, this, is, this has to do with your chances of being sober five years from now. Um, but there's also, you talked about involvement. So, so recovery begins with going to meetings, but it also involves much more than uh, going to meetings. Uh, it, for example, research has shown that those people who get a sponsor uh, do much better. Uh, that in fact, those people who get a sponsor within the first three months uh, after two years are seven times more likely uh, to, to be clean and sober. That's a huge advantage over people who wait to get a sponsor, even to like six or nine months. It goes down about 25, 30% below that. So when somebody's saying get a sponsor soon, uh, again, they can point to this. They can say, see, look, this is what it shows. Uh, you know, I'm, it's not just my opinion, but this is what research shows. If you do this, if you get a sponsor sooner, uh, if you commit to those two or three meetings a week, then, you know, your chances of recovery are much, much better. And um, one more point, I guess, I'll, I'll make, which has to do with identity, the whole idea of how you identify yourself. Um, uh, there was a psychologist named Eric Erickson who wrote a book called Identity, Youth, and Crisis. You may be familiar with it a long time ago. And, and, and his point was that the identity we form for ourselves, who, who, who Joe thinks he is and and who Joe uh, feels his purpose in life is and his values and so forth and what, what group he identifies with really becomes a template, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, so one research study, interestingly, uh, I studied those people who identified themselves as recovering alcoholics or recovering addicts, okay, as opposed to just I'm an alcoholic or an addict. So they, so, they, so they divided them into those people who identified themselves as recovering alcoholics or addicts versus those who just identified as alcoholics and, and addicts. And you mentioned self-efficacy during our, our discussion. As it turns out, years later, again, this is, I think, a two- or three-year study, 
found that those who identified themselves as recovering alcoholics or recovering addicts had a much higher score on self-efficacy and in turn had a much higher rate of staying clean and sober. So identifying yourself with the group, not only going to meetings and getting a sponsor, but actually coming to terms and saying, I'm I'm a member of AA or NA, okay? I'm a member of this 12-step fellowship. Is highly predictive of what's going to happen to you later and highly predictive of, of self-efficacy. Um, and by the way, I think that's, that, really, that really responds to some of the criticism. You know, you hear about, hey, oh, it's all about powerlessness and it makes people powerless and so on and so forth. You know, you hear that criticism, it's groundless because here's the research that shows that if you identify yourself as a member of a 12-step fellowship, you actually become more empowered over time, and your chances of, of recovery are much improved. So can I just clarify that, because I'm a little confused. So if you identify yourself as a recovering alcoholic right. or drug addict, you have a higher rate of self-efficacy than if you identify yourself as an addict or an alcoholic? Right, right. And so if you identify with, if you identify with the fellowship and you identify yourself as a member of the fellowship, um, and again, I think that, that, that stands in stark contrast to critic, you know, those who criticize AA as, as promoting powerlessness. It, it doesn't. In fact, if you, if you, you know, this research, for example, shows that those people have higher uh, self-efficacy, you know, two or three years later. Well, when you talk about being in recovery, you're claiming your life. I mean, you're you're you're, you're doing something that's action oriented that, that you're that you're participating in. When you just identify yourself as an addict or an alcoholic, right? There's no action there. It's just it's just there. It, it, yeah. It's, it's it's negative in some right. ways. Right. It's a negative. It's a it's a negative identity. It's a it's kind of it's a stigmatizing yeah. identity. But you know, again, the issue is. Uh, people, you know, AA is criticized by, uh, that people who are members or, you know, get, get involved or identify with AA uh, are, are, are signing on to some kind of personal powerlessness. You know what I mean? You hear that a lot. I certainly have heard that a lot over the years from, to be honest with you, my fellow, fellow psychologists who, who have a hard time uh, with AA because they believe it promotes powerlessness. And I keep, t- you know, I've been telling them all along that it doesn't, but uh, you know, to be honest with having to study, you know, in my back pocket helps a lot because I can say, hey, look, this is, this is, here's a study that followed these people. And this was done in, in uh, England, by the way. Well, I, th- I think it's, it's interesting because the powerlessness is really about um, your use of alcohol. It's not about your capabilities in life. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think that it gets misinterpreted. Um, the powerlessness, and, and because it's tied also to spirituality, which is another thing that's somewhat difficult to uh, wrap your arms around from a research perspective. Yeah, well, you know, again, I think that the critics of, of AA, and, you know, I have to be honest with you, I, when I first went out to Hazelden, okay, and back in 1985, I think, something like that, God, I either think I'm that old, but... Um, I remember walking into Hazelden, and um, they had a professionals and residence training program where I basically I was immersed in a treatment unit for ten days. And so, um, uh, when I first went there, and I sat down in this conference room, and there was the twelve steps up on the board, you know, on a big poster. Uh, 
you know, I had completed all my graduate training and two years of postdoc, and I had never really read the 12 steps. And so when I saw the word God several times in there, my initial reaction as a psychologist was, oh my, oh my goodness, you know, am I in the right place here? You know, I'm not, you know, is this, is this a kind of religious institution or, or, or whatever? And, and I think people have a, a lot of misconceptions about, about the spirituality aspect of, of, um, AA or NA or, um, other 12 step, other 12 step programs. And, uh, you know, it really isn't, it isn't obviously a religion at all. Um, you know, religions or even cults, you know, cults have leaders um, who dictate the rules. Religions have leaders who, you know, establish the dogma. They have priests who, you know, implement the dogma. AA has none of that. AA is completely decentralized. It has no dogma. Um, as people, most people know that Bill Wilson was a lifelong agnostic himself, uh, and that's why they inserted that phrase, as, you know, God as we understood him, because... They wanted it to be, uh, you know, much more diverse, much more open to different kinds of conceptions of a higher power. Um, and we'll be right back uh, with more of this fascinating subject with uh, Dr. Nowinski right after this commercial. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Do you know about Reiki? This method of healing can complement Western medicine as well as other alternative practices. Besides healing, it can have the additional effect of making you feel more positive about yourself and the world around you. By tuning into For the Love of Reiki with host Paula Vale, you'll find how Reiki can improve your health, bring balance into your life, and fill you with joy. For the Love of Reiki is broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Joseph Nowinski, and we're talking about his new book, which is quite fascinating. If you work, it works. Um, the science behind 12-step recovery. If you work it, it works. Um, you, there's so much I, I want to talk about. We don't have a whole lot of time left, but, okay. but I really think um, it's important to just highlight the um, what the research says about belonging to a group, whether it's your 12-step group or a moderation management group or whatever, mm-hmm. and the right. drinking versus the non-drinking environment. Right. Well, again, there's good research on this that that, that shows that uh, there. Really, I think there are two key, from my point of view at this point, there are really two key parts of 12-step recovery. One is the social support. Piece and the other is the is the is the if you want the spiritual renewal piece, and uh, the research shows that again people are confusing often confuse AA with a religion. Uh, what the research shows is that people who are in recovery over time become more spiritual, and that they embrace spiritual values like honesty, uh, being willing to own up to personal faults and flaws. Uh, believing in altruism, reaching out to others. So they become more spiritual. But interestingly, they don't become more religious. They don't attend religious services more often than when they did at the beginning. But they do tend to become more spiritual. So I think it's accurate to say that 12-step recovery is a spiritual program, uh, but not a religious program. Uh, the other piece is what you just mentioned, the social support, which is key. Uh, there's been a lot of, really a lot of good research on this, uh, beginning even with Project Match that we mentioned at the beginning of our interview. Um, so Project Match followed these 2,000 people, you know, for, 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 uh, three years and, you know, they either had, you know, 12 step facilitation, the 12 step model of treatment, they had cognitive behavioral or they had the motivational treatment. And what they found was even after, Three years, I mentioned at the outset that 12-step facilitation had about a 10% advantage over the three years and that people who are in a 12-step model of treatment were twice as likely to be absent that first year. And the key predictor of that was social support. So that over three years, the one of the best predictors, aside from going to meetings, and they're, these are related, uh, of outcome was the social support network. Those people whose social support network tended to support drinking, in other words, they had family and friends who were drinkers. They're not necessarily alcoholics, okay, but they tended to support drinking. And, you know, they were, they were you know, if you, if you hung out with these people, you were likely to drink. Uh, not that they were all alcoholics, but you were more likely to drink. And these, so, so people whose social support network supported drinking had a much worse outcome. And those people who had a social support network that supported sobriety had the best outcome. And, of course, we know what 
what the best social network to support sobriety is. It's the, you know, like you mentioned, it could be smart recovery. It could be women for sobriety. It could be AA. It could be any, it could be secular organizations for sobriety, whatever. But there are, what, these are social support networks where you, you know, you make friends, you connect with people, you exchange email addresses, uh, you get a sponsor, and that that is clearly, you know, the most potent predictor of, of recovery. started with, with Project Match, and it's been replicated in other studies. Um, one study, interesting, out of my own alma mater, UConn, uh, what's called a network support project, looked at people who went through 12-step facilitation and, um, and then, you know, compared that to a group of people who, who added, you know, um, non-drinking friends to their social network, okay? So instead of going to AA or NA, they just were encouraged to add non-drinking friends to their social support network. And what they found over uh, the last outcome, which was two-year two-year follow-up, was that uh, adding a couple friends to your social support network helped, but not nearly as much as going to AA. And that um, what people tend to do, by the way, is that they don't tend to drop their drinking friends out of their social network. What they tend to do is add a couple non-drinking friends. Right? So uh, if, you know, it, it, again, I guess the message is if you don't want to go to AA uh, and you want to add some non-drinking friends to your social network, that's cool. Uh, that might help, but not nearly as much as going to AA. And the other thing, which is probably harder for people to do, is to actually you know, really change the social network and sort of move away from your drinking friends and move toward your non-drinking friends. That seems to be much harder for people to do than just going to AA or NA. Um, One of the other uh, concepts in your book, which I think is um, under-highlighted or discussed in um, the addiction profession, is this idea that there's a continuum of use that people um, experience, just like with any other chronic illness, not everyone with diabetes ends up with vascular disease and amputations, and not everyone who has high blood pressure ends up having a stroke. But for for reasons that we could probably spend a whole other show on, that we have this black and white thinking when it comes to um, alcoholism. And can you just speak to that continuum, please? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that we used to think, um, and, and I think this is partly the mental health professions doing uh, in terms of two categories. And uh, the diagnostic criteria were, they're basically three categories, uh, alcohol dependence, alcohol abuse, and then the rest of us, if you will, you know. <laughs> so, and in order to have a diagnosis of either one, alcohol dependence or alcohol abuse, you had to have a really severe problem with really severe consequences. And so, what that what that led to was was some kind of strange thinking, that in, in my opinion, which is that if you didn't meet the criteria for for you know a really a severe alcohol problem, you were okay, you know, you were either an alcoholic or not, and so that led a lot of people to think, well, I don't you know, you know, I don't meet those criteria, you know, and so I haven't had blackouts, and you know, I I haven't. Uh, you know, had, you know, had the DTs, so uh, I'm okay. 
and and also even treatment facilities had to use those criteria. You know, if you didn't meet the criteria, you wouldn't qualify for treatment. But recently, the the American Psychiatric Association has issued new criteria and a new way of looking at uh, drinking problems, which I think is much more enlightened, and that's in terms of a spectrum. And that spectrum goes all the way. It's in, you know, I have a diagram in the book that shows on on one end there's kind of what's called low risk drinking, and you know that's defined. There there are, there are criteria for low risk drinking, which is no more than 14 drinks a week for a man and no more than seven for a woman. And then it moves from there all the way over to severe alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder, which is basically dependence. But in the middle, there's mild and moderate categories, okay? And they're not separated by even, even by fine, sharp lines, okay? So one tends to blend into another. So you can go from uh, kind of normal social drinking to sort of one foot into the mild alcohol use disorder part of the spectrum. And then you might get two feet in, you know what I mean, and so forth, and you may move along that spectrum. And that typically is where, what alcoholism is all about. If you read books like uh, Drinking a Love Story, like by Carolyn Knapp and, and Inside the High Functioning Alcoholic, you, that's exactly the story they tell about how it progresses on people. So, I mean, that's very important in terms of treatment. Um, some people think that, well, you know, depending on where you are on that spectrum, maybe abstinence doesn't have to be your goal, right? And so, uh, and again, there is some research about that. And for example, moderation management has been studied. People pretty much might be familiar with that idea of moderation management, which is that instead of pursuing abstinence, you can pursue moderation. Uh, there are still a lot of professionals out there who are pursuing that, by the way, and who are advertising that and promoting that. And I'm not necessarily... Uh, being, you know, matching that with the person's level of, you know, problem. So uh, what the research on moderation management says, to, to, to summarize it quickly, is that people in MM uh, tend to be younger. Uh, most of them are uh, under 40 and even under 35. Uh, most of them uh, were full-time, uh, had full-time jobs. Uh, they tended to have uh, family and friends that supported moderation. And last but most importantly, they had mild problems. When, they, when their, their, their uh, drinking problems assessed, it tended to be in the mild end of the spectrum. So the moral of the story for those people is that, yes, if you, have, if, if you can do an honest self-assessment or you go to a therapist or a professional and you have, you're not a low-risk drinker, but you sort of have a mild substance abuse problem, it's, it's affecting your life, but only in a mild level, then maybe strategies uh, for moderation would work. And, you, you know, moderation management has those strategies. My book, Almost Alcoholic, has those strategies. So if you're in that category, moderation might be something worth pursuing. That said, uh, in that particular study, 15% of the people who in that study reported problems like blackouts, tremors, uh, craving for drinking in the morning when you wake up. Those are not signs of a mild alcohol problem. Um, but interestingly, only 3% of those people would consider abstinence as a, as a goal. So, um, you know, I mean, I think it's important to, 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 to think in terms of a spectrum uh, for a person to really 
either get an uh, be, either be honest with themselves or get an honest assessment about where they are on that drinking spectrum. And then they need to consider what their goal, what the best goal for them is. You know, is, is moderation a reasonable goal? Um, another study, interrupting, I'm talking too long. This study is severe people with more severe problems, and it taught them moderation strategies. And this was done by William Miller out of the University of New Mexico a number of years ago. And it, they tended to try to treat them, you know, t- teach them moderation techniques or skills. But these people were not the MM group. This was people who had more severe problems. And they found, and they followed them for seven years. And after seven years, only 15% of those people became non-problem drinkers. The other 85% were still problem drinkers or they were just as bad as when they started out. So again, it's really important to match your goal for yourself with where you are in that drinking spectrum. And we'll be right back after this commercial for our final segment with Dr. Nowinski. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Good childhood mental health is critically important. Early patterns of emotions and thinking shape children's behavior from preschool into the teen years and beyond. But understanding young kids can be a challenge. Tune in to Child Psych Central. Discover the kid brain with Dr. Beth Onafrak. Each week, we will reveal how brain function and child development drive young children's daily behavior. Listen every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. It's one of the best things that you can do as a parent. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, our show today is about the science behind 12-step recovery with our guest, Dr. Joseph Nowinski, and um, I would like to highly recommend his um, new book, If You Work It, It Works, The Science Behind 12-Step Recovery, and um, you can get it through Hazleton Publishing, I think. Is there anywhere else people can get this book? Sure. It's, it's widely available. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at barnesandnoble.com, and 
You can also get it in bricks and mortar um, bookstores. So if okay. you walk into you know Barnes and Noble, you should be able to get it. Uh, but you can you know you certainly can also get it online at Amazon and other places. Um, and how can people get a hold of you if they'd like to talk to you or learn more about this? Uh, well, they're welcome to visit my website, which uh, is very, very, very simple and basic. But it's called josephnowinski.com. It's pretty catchy, right? Yeah. Uh, josephnowinski.com, and it has my contact information and people. Uh, I don't sell books through the website, but it has my contact information, and I am uh, always happy to answer questions uh, for people. And uh, if people are interested in having me come to speak someplace, they can contact me that way, too. Well, I think it would be really important for us to use our last segment to talk about um, recovery. And um, in part of your book, in part of your book, you talk about recovery and what can happen with, um, with abstinence. Because when I first started in this profession, we used to believe that you were only born with so many brain cells. And if you killed them all drinking alcohol, then you were never going to recover those brain cells. And um, can, can you speak to a little bit about what we know today about recovery? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's an important topic. And, um, well, it is true that there are a couple, you know, brain disorders like Wernicke syndrome and Korsakoff that are irreversible. You know, and I have uh, known people, I had a family member, in fact, that that ended up that way. So uh, there are, you know, if you drink hard enough and long enough, you can, cr- you can create irreversible brain damage. But that's the exception, and that's the, that's the good news. That is the exception. Um, now, again, you know, again, the, spurred by that Institute of Medicine, you know, white paper, a lot of work's been done in 12-step recovery. And w- what we know now is that about almost half of the people who go into treatment who have a severe alcohol problem, almost half of them have some signs of cognitive impairment. In other words, with memory, uh, with complex tasks, uh, and so forth. And, you know, recall complex thinking, problem solving. They have some impairment. Now, what, what, what happens to people is that they don't often connect that to their drinking because, you know, alcoholism is this insidious process. So they have these consequences, these cognitive consequences, but they don't attribute it usually to drinking. And those consequences usually affect them in some way, okay? Fairly often in terms of their job and so, and so forth. So they start having memory problems. They have problems, you know, comp- doing complex tasks. Um, and they are sort of mild to moderate impairment, okay? They're not the severe kind I just mentioned before. And almost half the people into treatment, you know, have those kinds of impairments. And interestingly, uh, those people who are in recovery, like a couple of years later, are, are back to normal. There's no difference between them and a control group of people who have no drinking problem. And that's really, really important. That's been, that's been substantiated in a couple um, a couple of very big research studies. So the the old idea that that you know if you drink you're damaging your brain is is true, um, and that you are probably going to cause some progressive cognitive impairment that you may not even connect the dots to your drinking. But the good news, if it's in that you know from for the great majority of people, except for those 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 that small group of people who suffer something like Korsakoff. 
it, the recovery leads to re- recovery and brain function as well, and that's great news. It's wonderful news um, because I, I know it's been my experience, especially in the early withdrawal phase from alcohol, people cognitively are, um, they don't, their memories are poor, mm-hmm. um, they have a right. hard time um, sleeping, Right. Um, you know, and for for some people, especially if they're young, it's like, oh my goodness, what have I done to my brain? And is it going to heal? Right. And for their family members who see them, you know, kind of babbling and not remembering. Right. So, um, it is that's you know, scary. It is very scary. And yeah. people, you know, people have thought that for a long time. That's part of the stigma, by the way, of alcoholism, because people thought, well, look, this person's pickled their brain, and so they're never going to be any good anymore. You know, and that, right. that, that, that added, I think, to the stigma of saying I'm an alcoholic because it was almost saying, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm brain dead. Right. And, and so uh, this research shows that that's not true. Uh, again, it, it, in recovery, if those people are abstinent and maintain their abstinence, that brain function recovers and, and recovers fairly quickly. I think two years is, 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 is pretty darn good to recover a lot of those, that brain function. And, and so when we're talking about um, recovery and we're talking about um, people staying sober, how does this compare to other chronic illnesses? I mean, the recovery rates and the participation in, in treatment? Well, I'm glad you asked that because we, AA, again, often gets bashed. Uh, one of the things I hear is that, you know, it's true that about half the people who try AA drop out after within three months. Uh, you know, they give it a try, and they, but no one knows why because AA doesn't follow those people, doesn't do research. Some of them may drop out because they don't like it. Uh, some may drop out because they, they feel that, you know, moderation is a better goal for them. Who knows? But, but, but what people say, oh, well, because 50% of people drop out of AA, that means 50% of it, its failure rate is 50%, which is really, you know, not not to the point at all. Research shows that, most Americans, only about 50% of us stick to our doctor's advice for any chronic illness, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, um, you know, you name it. Uh, you know, the, the compliance rate with medical treatment is only about 50%. The people either don't take their medication as prescribed um, or they don't lose weight, they don't change their lifestyle, they don't exercise, you know, they don't follow the treatment. And so what happens is that their condition gets worse. And so most people, the research shows, with a major or chronic medical condition, go back three, four, five, six times for treatment because, you know, they don't follow the treatment. So the fact that 50% of people uh, drop out of AA, to me, is not a reflection on, on the 12-step model at all. It's just a reflection on a decision that those people make. And... Um, so what the research shows, and that's, that's you know, kind of translated into my, in my book, is that uh, it doesn't have to do with if you decide to drop out. If you decide to drop out, that's your decision. But if you decide to stick with it, okay, and work it, it's going to work for you. And just like if you, if you stick to your doctor's recommended treatment for diabetes, it's likely to work for you, okay? So... Um, I mean, that's the moral of the story for me, not that, uh, you know, for those people who drop out, but what about for those people who stay with it? And, and again, what, what, what's the best way to stick with it? I mean, the research now shows things like you know, when to get a sponsor and, and so on about 
you know, and identifying with with the group and how many meetings make a difference and things like that. That you know, that that point away if you want to work it. Um, I just want to thank you for a fascinating hour. Um, oh, it's, you're welcome. Full by. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, it, this is information. I hope that we get out to a lot of folks because it's really important for both clinicians and for people in recovery. It's very validating, but it also gives us a roadmap in terms of um, different levels of, of substance misuse and dependence, and it also gives us options in, in looking at what options make sense based on people's um, level of um, impairment. So thank you so much for your research, and thank you oh, for all that you've my, done my for being on your show. profession. Have a good week, everybody. Take care. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.